I, I call the microbiome a living portrait. So it's a living portrait of how we live and in, in the and the ways in which we are in relationship to the world around us and to the others. When Christopher Columbus arrived in the Bahamas, or when Vasco da Gama made landfall in India, their voyages opened up a sea of changes, from cultural exchange and trade to opportunities for conquest. The many instances of violent colonization and forced migration that make up the history of our globalized world has had long-term impacts on the native populations by overhauling what they traded in, how they lived, and even what they ate. Some changes were large and immediately visible, others less noticeable and are still being discovered today. As it turns out, when colonizers forced countries under their own banner, they colonized more than just the land. They even colonized the minuscule microorganisms that live in the human gut. The gut microbiome, or the amalgamation of bacteria, fungi, archaea, and viruses that reside in the digestive tract of living beings, is receiving a lot of attention from the scientific community. As many researchers say, it holds important clues to human health, decoding which has led to its own slew of interventions, including pharmaceutical pills and fecal transplants, to restore a healthy microbiome and treat several conditions. But the gut microbiome has undergone its own evolution. Its history is congruent with the enforced lifestyle and cultural changes brought about by colonization and migration. But there are some among us, such as certain indigenous populations, who still possess what researchers call an ancient microbiome, although this too is undergoing a swift change. Hey, this is Rohita. Hey, this is Ananya. Today we are in conversation with Dr. Fergus Shanahan, Professor and Chairman of the Department of Medicine at University College Cork, National University of Ireland, to understand the connections between the gut microbiome and the history of colonization. Dr. Shanahan is also the founder and director of the Alimentary Pharmabiotics Center in Cork, Ireland, which is among the largest gut microbiome research centers in the world. We are also speaking with Dr. Rupa Madhya, a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and founder of the Do No Harm Coalition, which is committed to addressing disease through structural change. To unpack how gut microbiota relates to radical acts of decolonization and what that means for the future of health and disease. This model presents the missing link. First of all, I, 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 let's just begin with a definition of the microbiome or a statement about it. It's simply a big word that describes the entire collection of microbes that colonize the body. Uh, they're on the human body and they're in the human body in most body cavities. And when I use the word microbe, it simply is a creature that you can't see. It's microscopic. We can't see them. That's why we call them microbes. And we have different types of microbes. Uh, we've got viruses that people might be surprised to hear that are normally present in the in the gut and on the skin as well. We've got bacteria. We have ancient bacteria-like organisms called archaea, and we even have yeasts or fungi. So it's that whole panoply of of living creatures that uh, occupy the human body and and reside on it. And you'll often hear people say things like, 
well, is it healthy or is it normal? Is it good or is it bad? Is it a good microbe or a bad microbe? There's no such thing. Microbes are amoral. They they don't the human language doesn't fit with them. They don't have brains and think and, and organize thoughts. They're just there. Time and chance determines what will happen. They're there to survive. They were there on the globe before we existed, and they'll be there long after we've departed from this globe. And um, we must not ascribe terms like good and bad because that's only a matter of context. Any microbe in the wrong place at the wrong time has the potential to cause trouble. Thankfully, the vast majority of microbes rarely or never cause any problems and are actually an asset. They made the planet habitable for us. They actually are required for food production. And they're required for the quality of the air we breed. They're required for our our food. They help us digest um, foods that we couldn't otherwise digest. But I, I've been arguing from first principles and also experimental data that it is very difficult to define normal or healthy. And I, I challenge loose descriptions about that. And from first principles, let me just say, you can't say normal is the same as healthy. And from a microbiome perspective, let me explain why. Not long ago, um, 100% of the population in the first world, in socioeconomically developed countries, what we call socioeconomically developed countries today, North America, continental Europe, not long ago, certainly in Victorian times, everybody had Helicobacter pylori, an organism in the stomach. We know that that causes ulcers. We know that that can cause stomach cancer. So you can't, however, say that that, even though that was normal, you couldn't describe that as healthy. So normal cannot be the same as healthy. And by the way, helicobacter, even though it causes some of those cancers and those ulcers, it actually protects against other conditions such as cancer at the lower end of the esophagus. So it's good and bad if you want to use that kind of binary language, but it doesn't fit. So disease really depends on context. So just as normal is not the same as healthy, healthy is not the same as absence of disease because we know we all harbor, I've just mentioned Helicobacter, we know that we, we harbor organisms or collections of organisms that have the potential in the right context to cause disease. So therefore... Healthy is not the absence of disease. And many of us are harboring things that that's the real challenge for microbiome sciences to identify what aspects of the microbiome are potentially hazardous in certain individuals. And lastly, let me just say normal can't be the average or the typical because most people in the developed world now are overweight or obese. And the microbiome is related to that. So you can't say that's normal. You can't say it's healthy. It's, so I'll finish this part by saying it's also the case almost certainly, that some microbiomes, some collections of organisms are perfectly adapted in certain ethnic groups, certain geographic regions, such as, for example, someone surviving in an area of the globe that is famine-torn, stricken with famine sporadically. They are likely to have a microbiome that is highly adapted to maximal extraction of calories available in sporadically consumed diet. Now, that is a health asset. Transport that person now to a different geographic region, a different environment, an obesogenic environment in the developed world, and that microbiome now 
becomes a liability for the development of obesity and metabolic disease. And I don't think that countries receiving migrants are dealing with ethnic minorities, and particularly in view of transcontinental migrations now, which are a fact of life now, I don't think we're taking that into sufficient account. And the microbiome is, our, is one of our best windows on these processes. Uh, because the dietary recommendations that public health officials are giving to all of us, these dietary pyramids, they suit fine for some individuals in, who've grown up in a socioeconomically developed country, but they might not be suitable for ethnic migrants. I think that what you just said, um, Fergus, about context is truly everything. So that, you know, you cannot simply say that a creature... Um, being present or not, being active or not, um, will necessarily necessarily confer health or disease. And that context is really um, what I'm very interested in as a physician um, in terms of how we can create the optimum kinds of context for different kinds of people to thrive. And exactly what you're saying in terms of you, there is no one brush stroke, right? There is no one sense of what wellness is for, for everybody. Um, however, there are some pretty good indicators of things that are damaging. Um, so there are contexts that we know are damaging for all humans. Um, and so these are the things that I've been very interested in, in terms of how dynamics of power um, will create those those um, gradients of damage um, for different kinds of people who do not have the power to shape their material realities, let's say, or control their material realities because of, you know, external forces. Um, and so, um, can you share with us a little bit about how? Um, let's say, I know you did that study with the travelers, um, a group that has been discriminated against in Ireland, even though they're, you know, racial, whatever racial, uh, genetically Irish, but ethnically distinct group of people, um, and how dynamics of power there, um, impacted their, their bodies, their health, um, or disease outcomes, um, and what, what you saw in the level of uh, what was happening in their gut. Sure. Well, the study you're referring to was published in uh, Nature Medicine a short while ago, and it, it was a study of, it might seem like it was an obscure group. This is 1% of the Irish population are referred to as travelers. And the word traveler just comes literally from the fact that they were once nomadic. They wandered around um, a small island on the western uh, outskirts of Europe, and they um, had manual uh, skills. They assisted um, non-traveling farmers to at times of harvest. So they were quite um, not quite integrated with the rest of society, but definitely participating in a lot of Irish life. But as farming became more mechanized and agriculture became less important in Ireland, that aspect of traveler interaction with the rest of society diminished. And they have pretty much for the last, most of the last century, been living a parallel existence in Ireland. 
And when I was growing up, they were very much in evidence. You would see them on the roadside traveling in their caravans. And they lived a traditional lifestyle with huge numbers of children. Uh, they were deeply religious. And nomadism was was ingrained. They didn't quite know why they wandered around the countryside, but this was something they had done for centuries. Now, their population has diminished, but they still account for about 1% of the Irish population. And they have been studied genetically. They are indeed Irish. They're not the same as Roma or Romani or any of these continental European modern nomads. They are quite distinct from those. So they're genetically Irish living in a small geographic area with, with the rest of the Irish community, which is socioeconomically developed or industrialized. So you've got this traditional lifestyle, ancient lifestyle, in parallel with this, soci this socioeconomically developed lifestyle. And that's what makes this uh, internationally important as a model for looking at the influence of modernization and some of the injustices that can happen. Their songs are different. Um, their art is quite beautiful, often features um, things that are iconic for them, namely the, the horse and other domestic animals, but particularly horses are iconic for, 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 for travelers. Uh, and they have their very distinct history. So there's no doubt that they are a, a distinct uh, minority and were granted ethnic minority status by the Irish government, I should say also. However, they have become discriminated against progressively over the last 50 uh, to 100 years. The Irish state is only 100 years old. It's this year is its centenary, actually, the foundation of the Irish state uh, um, occurred just 100 years ago. But when you look at legislation in Ireland, particularly over the last five or six decades, you find repeatedly Irish governments have been enacting legislation that effectively has denied the travellers the capacity to live their culture, to live the traditional lives they've been leading. They're never mentioned in the legislation, but the legislation would include things like making it more difficult to possess horses on the outskirts of a city, making it more difficult to use communal land to graze your horses. Uh, it's been a policy of enforced assimilation. In other words, the travelers are often referred to as the traveler problem. Instead of saying this rich tapestry of life and culture that we have on the island, uh, politicians have essentially felt the best way to help the travelers is to force them to be like the rest of us, force them to stop traveling, to leave their caravans, to stop going around the countryside and to push them into, effectively have pushed them into what are called halting sites or into state-sponsored social housing. And that has happened particularly aggressively in the last 20 years. So it is no longer possible for them to do what they did when I was, was, was a youngster growing up. You don't see them by the roadside anymore. They're out of sight, out of mind, which of itself has increased their marginalization and the, and the discrimination against them. And um, they have been forced into either these halting sites, which look like trailer parks uh, in North America, the Irish travellers were officially recognised as an indigenous ethnic minority in 2017, after several years of campaigning to have their heritage and culture recognised. But the discrimination and poverty they experience 
along with the laws that engender their forced assimilation, have not only eroded the traveller culture, ways of life and traditional means of employment, but have also raised a mental health crisis of mammoth proportions. Last year, the BBC cited an Irish Parliamentary Committee report which said that 11% of travellers in Ireland died by suicide. A report in the Irish Times points out how racism and discrimination are the primary causes of the high suicide rates among the travellers, which is six times higher than that of the general population. Almost two-thirds of travellers have lost a loved one to suicide. As one young member of the community told the BBC, poor mental health is born of living two lives, one where they are struggling to maintain their identity on the one hand and attempting to assimilate and belong in Irish society on the other. They were promised education and promised all the services, the sanitary services, but of course, politicians don't always live up to their promises. And in a lot of cases, that wasn't delivered. Or they were actually forced to take social housing. But social housing with a difference. It did not allow them have areas where they could graze and keep their horses. And that is terribly important. And they keep saying it's important for their mental health. We've uncovered that it may well be important for their microbiome as well. So we looked at this from the point of view of, I was uh, um, functioning as a clinician for the last 40 years and I was aware that there were certain diseases I never saw in travellers. Yes, I saw the diseases of poverty and I saw the effects of discrimination and the mental health aspects and the alcoholism and those things and the accidents and life outdoors that you, that you would expect. But I never saw inflammatory bowel disease. That's Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. I never saw some of the immune-mediated disorders like multiple sclerosis. And I had calculated that for the region I was in, I should have seen somewhere between 30 and 50 cases over my career. And I saw none, not one, zero. Now, I'm about to do a full-scale formal epidemiologic study for the rest of the country on this to see if they are indeed protected from those conditions and could that be related to their microbiome. That was my starting point. So we, we went and studied them and we were amazed. Now, it takes a lot to amaze me in science, but we were amazed that we found microbiomes and microbes that not only had we not seen before, we didn't even know they existed. And we compared approximately 150 travelers, these modern nomads, if you will, are living an ancient lifestyle, with 300 people from the rest of Ireland. And then we compare that with 3,000 similarly studied metagenomes, that's collections of microbial genes uh, from published studies from around the globe, mainly from North America and continental Europe. And you find most of the microbiome studies have been done in these industrialized countries, these first world socioeconomically developed countries, very few done in developing our so-called third world countries, socioeconomically developing countries, non-industrialized. And I, I use the term industrialized and non-industrialized as the, um, uh, the United Nations use it. They have a specific definition for that. But it's essentially what, what you could imagine it to be. And we found that the travelers in Ireland had a microbiome that was closer to that of Mongolian horsemen or to the Hadza tribe in Tanzania or to, similar to some other um, 
ethnic minorities, such as Peruvian farmers, all subgroups that have very ancient forms of lifestyle. Uh, uh, so the travelers were closer to them than they were to anything we saw in any of the other studies in, in socioeconomically developed countries. So if the travelers possess an ancient microbiome, how is it that they have retained it? And how can we explain the microbiome being closer to those of communities in other parts of the world than to the general Irish population? Now, the usual explanation for that is diet. And diet is, of course, one of the most important things that shapes your microbiome. But in this case, diet did not. We had very good dietary history on, on, on both sides, uh, both the, the travelers and the non-travelers in society. Diet did not account for this. Uh, the three things that jumped out, screamed out above all of the other things that we could measure or thought about measuring, all of the other elements of a modern lifestyle that we could think of. Um, including birth by cesarean, birth by natural means, all the things that you usually think of it that could influence a microbiome. Um, the three things that jumped out were, number one, proximity and possession during childhood of horses. Number two, not so much nomadism, but the, the conditions under which you live when you are nomadic, that is living in close quarters. Uh, large families living in close quarters, such as in a, one of their traditional caravans that they use to, 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 to wander around the countryside. And the third thing was sibling count. The average number of siblings in a family of the travelers was approximately 10, 10 siblings per, per family. Whereas the average for most socioeconomically developed countries, particularly in Western Europe and specifically for Ireland, is 1.4 per family now. We're now an aging society, not replacing our population. We're relying on immigration, but not uh, duplication, replication of the Irish. But the travelers had these lar large, large families. And we already know that, for example, in the case of Helicobacter and other organisms, that living in close quarters, sharing the same bed is one way to disperse your, your microbiome. So we often think about spreading pathogens from human to human. And we got that, of course, during COVID. But we also spread health. You know, most of us, we, we all acquire our microbiome initially. The first colonizers are from our mothers. But the second wave of colonizers are for the thing, from the things the, a, a baby touches. It's called a social microbiome, human to human contact, human to animal contact, human to inert subject, uh, object contact, breathing the air in the environment outside, exposure to nature. That's the second wave. And, um, we believed, we still believe that the travelers have retained an ancient microbiome and it's the settled community, the non-traveling community, they are the ones that have actually changed. And it turned out when you put a metric on the degree to which they've retained their ancient lifestyle, those travelers who have retained the ancient lifestyle and resisted modernization, kept their large families, went to halting sites rather than houses, they're the ones who actually had this non-industrialized microbiome. Um, whereas those who actually were either in a house in childhood or er, from an early age forced into a house, they are the ones that are losing their microbiome. So we think they're losing with this enforced 
uh, change in our culture. And we'd never know about it if you didn't look at the microbiome because to me, the microbiome is just a mirror. It's a, it's a, it's a metric on your health. It transduces lifestyle signals, environmental signals, dietary signals. And it, because of this, the interaction between microbes and host, it determines and influences your health, but it's also a mirror on your health. And you might say, well, what are the health consequences? Well, we have to follow it up to be able to prove that this enforced culture change, enforced by, by governments and by the majority, actually is adverse to their, to their uh, health. We already know, and we will show, I'm fairly sure we'll show that they are protected at present from things like inflammatory bowel disease, as I said earlier. But when we start to do the comparisons of those who are losing this microbiome, I believe we start to see inflammatory bowel disease emerge. And because this population was fairly young that we studied, as we followed them over time, I believe we'll start to see accelerated development of things like obesity, the metabolic diseases, because I believe their microbiome is not adapted to that situation. And I believe public health guidelines have to be reformed for obvious reasons. How can you describe, how can you say what's normal in a tiny little country where everyone's genetically fairly homogeneous? So that's a big challenge to what you call normal, but it also uh, points to the social microbiome and points away from just diet. And it certainly points the finger at misguided public health, um, even if it's not stated public health guidance, but it's a, a continuing policy of what they call dissimulation, which sounds nice. It sounds wonderful, but we provide education and sanitation, perhaps, but you're actually stealing their culture from them. And to me, that has hidden health consequences and the microbiome is screaming that at us. Yes, and I've wondered, thank you so much for that, Fergus. Um, I've wondered about that with regards to what we see here in the United States with the ongoing family separation. So right now the Supreme Court is hearing the Indian Child Welfare Act um, case where a, you know, in the 70s, it became illegal for white families to adopt Native children because that was part of the genocidal tactic of assimilation in the United States has meant um, eradication of indigenous culture. Um, so this land here, and we see the same in India with the treatment of Adivasi people, um, the same kind of structures of violence against Dalit people um, that, you know, caste um, dominance exerts. Um, so these same patterns of oppressions we see around the world in the interest of assimilating or giving more, quote, opportunity, unquote, we're actually destroying the very fibers um, that have connected people to specific landscapes, specific practices, specific um, cultures that have kept, kept them well or in balance, kept their immune system in balance. And I've often wondered, you know, when we look at the, you know, guns, germs and steel argument that, oh, you know, those, those Native Americans were just immune, naive to all these diseases. And then along came, you know, these Europeans with these diseases and just wiped them out. It was just this passive experience. But actually in that context, there were people who were being removed from their homelands. So, you know, what happens when people are removed from their homeland or their way of being, um, the stress signals in the body also um, shape the gut microbiota. So you can have denuded um, guts or changed altered guts, um, uh, gut ecology be, by being exposed 
ex, you know, just exposed to chronic waves of stress and trauma. Um, and that's something that I looked at, you know, when we were, you know, on the front line here with COVID, um, I work as a hospital medicine doctor, and you just got to see who was occupying the ICU beds um, with COVID. And it was people who were coming from communities that had suffered legacies of um, discrimination. So they were black people. There were here in California, our farm worker, um, people from Central and South and, uh, America were hit extremely hard. Um, so people who were living in conditions that um, make um, social distancing impossible, that make um, access to healthcare impossible, like those current realities are critical. But then there's also the accumulated burden of you know what happens um, intergenerally intergenerationally as these stresses are created and recreated, not only in the pregnant mother and then passed to her child through birth, um, how the immune system is being um, tuned. I, I think of it like tuning like an instrument. Is it, you know, being prepared to sound out the full range of inflammatory responses to get that child ready when they're born? Um, or is it being tuned to a different kind of um, harmony with the environment? When Raj and I wrote the book, we we made a joke when we were talking about the microbiota of indigenous people like the Warani, like the um, like the Yanomami, in, also in the Amazon, that these people had these strains of ancient microbes. We said, you know, we know right there, there's some capitalists out there trying to turn Yanomami shit into gold. As we write this, the book Dr. Maria refers to is Inflamed: Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice, which she wrote along with Raj Patel an academic, journalist, activist, and writer. The book explores how the environment, histories, and the way in which society itself is structured impacts our health. It looks at the highly sophisticated nature of the immune system, which Dr. Maria explains evolved over millions of years. As the stressors and damaging signals in our environment increase, the immune system responds in its own way, to heal the damage, which we know as the inflammatory response. And in fact, the book was published and then um, there was a New York Times article about some guy at Stanford trying to turn Yanomami shit in the gold. But what was interesting to me is that it is a fallacy to think that you can just pop a pill and recreate something that is as sophisticated as a symphony, which is literally living organisms in conversation and dialogue with each other at all times. So you can't recreate this in a pharmaceutical approach. You have to recreate this by shifting the entire nature of relationships around us, um, which I, I think is, you know, really what to me the most exciting part of microbiome science that I've seen is that if context is everything um, to 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 deciding, you know, to, to seeing how the body might respond in terms of dysregulated inflammation. Um, or in terms of balanced immune response. And to me, Fergus, that's how I kind of have come to understand an aspect of health or wellness. When I see my patients' bodies racked by inflammation, um, they're, they're not living well. They're not living, um, you know, their lives are sh shortened in terms of their enjoyment of their lives, but also the, um, the spans of their lives. Um, but so I think that, what is exciting to me about learning more about microbiology, not just of our gut, but also in the soil and in the world around us, is that it, it points the way to um, opportunities um, to imagine 
a better world for all of us, a better world in which all beings may thrive. Um, and that's where you get, you know, a, a, an opportunity to think about um, learning from those groups that are considered what we might consider ethnic minorities, learning from people who have um, lived well in their communities outside of modern industrial contexts, learning what they um, have ha has carried them through you know, thousands and thousands of years um, of of existing. Um, and so I feel like that that is an important part for me as a physician is learning how to co-produce knowledge of health. And that's the part, the work that we're doing with the Deep Medicine Circle now, a group of um, us organizing to literally heal the wounds that we see that have been created through colonial dynamics of power through food and medicine, through how we steward soil, through bringing a beaver back to a watershed, through bringing the elk back, through kicking the cows off the land, through um, reimagining um, ways to partner with um, indigenous and non-indigenous people together to learn the best um, of what all our uh, different sciences um, invite us to, to know. First of all, I agree with everything you said. Just for the, the general listener, um, uh, Rupa mentioned the immune system several times there. And um, just to make the point that you can survive um, in a microbial world without without having a robust immune system, but you'll have to live in a bubble if that's the case. In actual fact, we require the microbiome that colonizes us to educate our immune systems. And that happens in the first phase of life, the first three years of life and particularly the first year of life, and particularly the first months of life. So it isn't just a simple thing of saying, oh, those feces are worth gold. Um, it isn't as simple as that because the education happens early on. Our immune system does not is fully developed in a full-term baby at birth, but it's not mature. And I think you said fine-tuned or, or refined, or it, need, it needs to undergo maturation. And that does not happen by exposure to infections. That was the old theory. It does, that would be too haphazard. Nature would never allow that to happen. It is much more structured. It's by being colonized, colonized by thousands and hundreds of thousands and trillions of microbes, all with different antigens on their surface for the, for the immune system to see something that is harmless. And that's how it will know something that is danger when danger arrives. So... That education occurs very early on. So if we're going to mess with nature and mess with these societies and force them to change, don't think that they can suddenly reverse that by taking uh, a fecal transplant or something, you know, some quick fix, when all of that education happens very early in life. And so it's, it's generations of damage that one can do. The other thing is that some of the things you're seeing, um, Rupa, that you mentioned there are, we hadn't seen them much in history in the past because... Modernization or cultural changes in the past tended to be gradual, allows time for, for adaptation, and the microbiome is very adaptable. Well, when you've got Columbus coming over on top of your shores, or when you've got colonialization, which is usually involves violence, at the top of that, it's an abrupt change. And now when we're seeing mass migration of people, these are abrupt transitions that are happening where there's no chance for either the human, well, the human genome only adapts very slowly, but the microbiome can adapt relatively quickly, but not that fast when the changes are so abrupt. 
and you're talking about generations of damage because that education of the immune system happens early on. You also mentioned stress there, you know, from, from marginalization and discrimination. And when I was working with, with some of these minority groups and increasingly as I work with them, initially you think when you meet them, they're delightful to chat with and their culture is so interesting and enriching. And you think, well, these people don't seem to be stressed. But in actual fact, when you talk to them, and particularly the women will tell you, and you know, I thought I knew what stress was. I knew about acute stress, chronic stress. I'd seen it, what I thought I'd seen in, in clinical practice. But I had not heard the term anticipatory stress. And it is in the literature, all right. But I had not heard it until these Irish traveler women folks said to me, we suffer profoundly from anticipatory stress. We're fine when we're in the halting site or in our caravan or in our, in our state-sponsored house. But when we try to engage with the rest of society, the non-traveling society, anticipatory stress is waiting for the other person to recognize that they're a traveler. And suddenly it's that awkwardness that emerges and the stress of waiting for that is just far easier not to deal with it because they know there's going to be some discrimination or they're not going to be treated the same way. So they select out certain places where they'll shop, they select certain places where they socialize and they stay within that narrow confinement. And that's the hidden influence of discrimination. They don't get out to the parks that the rest of us have. They don't get to get exposed to nature that the rest of us are, are exposed to. They're even denied their animals now and they're restricted to their small little tiny communities because of that anticipatory stress. So stress is not always obvious to us and what we call stress isn't what they call stress, but they're the ones who have, uh, they control the language in my view on this. Um, so I, I believe what they say completely. Now, there's one thing that we haven't addressed, and that is, how do you make the rest of society care about any of these things? I mean, people know about this. People know about your book. People have known about other kinds of books. People have, it's all out there. But how do you make anyone care about it? And I'm convinced the only way to make anyone care about public health issues is to tell them stories, first of all, not just facts, but also tell them stories of real people, but also tell them stories that are relevant to themselves. For example, if the travelers are protected, they may be vulnerable to violence and alcohol and suicide and mental health issues and poverty. But if they're protected from some of the main scourges that happen, like severe allergies, severe immune-mediated diseases, isn't that something we should invest in and pay attention to? I don't mean by a quick fix, but something we might need to, need to have. And in addition, there are other minorities that we haven't talked about. We've talked about the extreme minorities but there are minorities within the privileged community that they don't even recognize. One example would be the elderly. Look at the way some societies and some cultures treat their elderly. And I'm not saying it's easy or anything, but in big cities, in a fast-paced society, in current economic circumstances, it can be very difficult for an individual to look after aging parents. Aging parents then go into a nursing home. They lose their friends. They don't have the same contact. They're not out experiencing nature. They're losing microbes there. They're often not allowed to have any animals or pets in the, in the house. So they don't have that contact and, and, and acquiring and fostering their microbiome there. They have fewer friends, fewer social contact. COVID comes along, for example, and they're not even allowed to meet anyone. And people were touching each other through glass. 
And we already know now that we start to study the microbiome, what do you expect? We're finding that as you get older, now some of this is physiological because of physiological changes, but we lose microbes. Sadly, we tend to retain those which have a greater potential to cause disease, such as Clostridium difficile, which of course is exactly the population, the elderly are the ones where that usually causes the most havoc. Your fingerprint and your DNA tells you your identity, tells me who's who at forensic level, which your microbiome tells you what kind of life you lead and what kind of environment you've, you've had imposed on you. And I think it is should be incorporated now into public health policy to try and break down these inequities. I think that's absolutely right. I, I, I call the microbiome a living portrait. So it's our living portrait of how we live and in, in the, the ways in which we are in relationship to the world around us and to the others. What you say about the elderly, uh, Fergus, and how do we make people care? Um, that's been my biggest question with COVID. Um, so um, I haven't dined indoors in a restaurant in two years um, just because I take care of elderly people. I'm a physician. Um, I have friends who are immunocompromised and I don't want to get sick and bring something home inadvertently. Um, but ask people to wear a mask in the United States and you get, you know, right wing, um, insurrection. Um, and so that to me, um, it really shows the breakdown. If you look at the values and cult, uh, the cultural values of groups like the travelers who put their elderly at the campfire and include them versus the values in the United States where elders are warehoused and 90% of our COVID deaths are people over 60. Um, and, and unfortunately we haven't risen to the challenge in the last two years. We didn't bring our elders home. We didn't um, adjust our lives so that they could be less lonely in the last two, three years of their lives. So they died in loneliness. They died with, um, you know, such deep sadness and isolation it's, it's really a, um, a statement of how uh, disconnected we have become as modern industrial humans from the beings that bring us life um, and bring us um, the ability to thrive, whether those beings are creatures in the soil or in our, um, in our environments, um, or those are our mothers and grandmothers. Um, it, to me, that is... Um, that is a deeply, I think it's a spiritual question, um, and I'm not sure exactly how you know you tackle it, but it really, um, I think that for myself, demanding the right to care feels really critical. Like I have a right to care about that water that feeds our farm, that we grow and give away tens of thousands of pounds of organic food, that that water is being um, depleted by people who have second homes who want to water their lawn, which allows the algae to bloom, which is toxic algae, which doesn't allow the salmon and the, and the trout to thrive, which is why bringing beaver back and starting to wrest that second home lawn watering away from people and sticking that water back in the creek in a place where there's so much drought. This will require um, going to head to head in terms of power. What you're talking about, Fergus, around we need public health policies that will look at the microbiota, the microbiome. Going back to what Dr. Shanahan had said about how we don't just spread pathogens, but we also spread health. 
the general health discourse we're surrounded by today is very individualistic in the sense that it says if you want a good gut microbiome you need to stay active eat well not overuse antibiotics but are we missing something here especially when we consider that populations are constantly on the move we live in a globalized world borders are more fluid and there are some populations who are more vulnerable to systemic oppression than others there's a refugee crisis as well as a migration crisis so how can we spread health when we're confronted with all these systemic injustices first point is there's no quick fix to any of this um when i referred to the ancient lifestyle and the non-industrialized microbiome you have to keep in mind there's more than one non-industrialized microbiome the travelers although they were different to the industrialized nations who tended to be quite similar they were differently different to say the mongolians or the peruvians or the hadza they were closer to them but differently different so they've come down different evolutionary diversifications if you like um in the same way that when people talk about a paleo diet or something like that there's no one paleolithic diet there were multiple different paleolithic diets depending on what was available but the point that these all these things all show up is that as we've undergone modernization we've certainly lost some things microbiome is one uh, mirror on that but what i was trying to point out is by continuing to study the same groups all the time we're missing a lot you have to study these ethnically and culturally distinct groups to find out what's happening for example i i leave listeners with one fact when population studies are done on the microbiome of um uh, european and north american studies we can only account for 20% of the variance in the human microbiome it's actually less than 20% So there's a huge proportion of the variance, the heterogeneity of microbiomes that we either can't account for, haven't done enough studies, haven't looked at enough minority groups, or unlikely is happening purely by chance. It's more likely it's not happening by chance, but they're just things we haven't yet studied. And no one would have known about the travelers until we just decided to almost on a whim go study them. I was horrified and amazed to think that there could be a substantial proportion a substantial minority that could be so different and so the point that whole thing shows is we need to do more work and be far more diversified in the studies we do um before we attempt quick fixes uh, so it won't be just a simple thing like saying oh yeah let's grab this microbiome take a fecal transplant or take a probiotic from this particular group or it it, it will just not be that straightforward Now in terms of how can we fix some of these inequities that we're talking about and make people care uh, well one thing for sure is nothing will happen if we give up and institutions generally have no soul individuals have soul individuals have always made a difference and and so no quick fix i'm afraid people just have to keep trying but i think we have to convince the world that microbes were here before us they made the planet habitable we'll probably need them again to clean up the mess we've made of this planet we've used microbes to do everything from from making our food producing the beer we drink making life sustaining drugs to even cleaning up oil slicks and there are even microbes now that are digesting styrofoam we need to actually use these and 
work with nature, not against nature. And COVID showed us that. We have to start to understand that we are all interconnected. Ourselves, our choices affect one another very gravely, as we've seen with COVID. Um, And that um, we are interconnected with the web of life itself. And so when we steward that web of life, when we care for it, when we are in good relationship with it, we are are given this gift of all of these benefits for our immune systems, for our health, for our relationships with the the natural world. And so... um, I think that it does require collective work. It requires getting involved in policy and shifting, organizing. If policy is not going to work, then you organize with your communities to ensure that those people who are being trampled by current policies don't get trampled anymore, that you work together to start to shift those things. And that's part of the work that we do with the Deep Medicine Circle, also with the Do No Harm Coalition. But it, it is actually critical that we understand that these problems that we're facing with the denuding of our guts, with the felling of our own internal forests, are, are problems of power and, and power dynamics. Um, and they cannot be fixed on the individual level. Yeah, may, may I just underscore that, um, Rupa, just to underscore that, that when you work with ethnic minorities, one of the things they tell you is they've got research fatigue you know, they're tired of people coming along writing reports just to be able to say they've written a report for some politician and then no policy change. They don't mind research, but it must be research that then is followed up with policy change. And that is what's lacking. You have to have the policy change. Yes, because then it then it is in service of their agendas of improving their material circumstances, of improving their ability to get the things that they need to make sure their children have a better life and their community has safety. Um, and so that is, you know, um, the work that we're doing on this 38 acre farm in um, Ramatush territory and then one acre rooftop farm in Oakland in territory of Huchin. This work um, we call farming is medicine. And it literally is taking the food system and flipping it on its head. So we start with giving land back and, and working to bring back indigenous systems of care and understanding to how we tend land and how we think of food. We reframe farmers as health stewards so that the work that they're doing is not just, you know, extracting as much food as they can from the earth, but they're being paid as people stewarding the health of the soil, because we know that that has climate benefits for our community. It makes our soil more drought resistant. It makes our seeds, it gives our plants a chance to adapt to the current climactic conditions that are developing. And then all the food that they grow, um, they're giving away. So we grow food. We've grown up to 27,000 pounds of organic food that we've just given away to communities who are oppressed by hunger um, in San Francisco and Oakland. And the, the next part of our work is decommodifying food, and that's policy, right? So if, if our people are hungry, just like with the Irish famine back in the day, or the famines we saw in India and Africa during the height of colonization in the 1800s, in the early 1900s, the millions of people who died did not die because there was no food. That food was there. It was being exported to the colonial metropoles. So that is a problem of distribution. That is a capitalist arrangement of power. And we're seeing those same kind of violences existing today that, you know, it's not like in San Francisco where there's more, you can throw a rock and hit a billionaire out here. It's not like there's not not an abundance of food or wealth. It's that um, the arrangements of power have made it so that 25% of people in our community are going without a meal. They're skipping meals. Children are skipping meals, which is just, you know, 
this is crazy uh, when we live with such abundance. And that is not a problem of our, um, that there's not enough crops. That's a problem of a, of a system that has um, enforced vulnerability amongst certain people. So how do we unenforce that vulnerability that requires structural change? And that's, that's something we must do together. And so when I'm with my patients and we're talking about substance use disorder, we're talking about diabetes, we're talking about their insulin levels. Sure, we'll talk about it on here's the diet and exercise that you can do. Here's the things that you can do with your family. And let's look at the bigger structures that have made it almost impossible for you to avoid this outcome. Um, and that allows them to actually start participating with us in the um, building a radical solidarity to shift their circumstances so that everyone in their community doesn't get diabetes. And that's the thing is when we look at the rising rates of, for example, diabetes, which is another chronic inflammatory disease, um, that, that this is not because billions of people on planet Earth are making bad choices. It's because we have a food system that has been designed to maximize profits for a few people and leave the rest of us racked with illness. And that's not that's not a food system based in care. Um, and that's why a care revolution is from the very beginning. It's a it's a we, we have to have a different mindset about how we live on this earth if we're going to live well. Let's talk about India and Indian history. For instance, the Bengal famine, the cholera epidemics, and the malnutrition epidemic that still continues. These have shaped the population's gut microbiome in different ways, according to where we are located and the social locations. But this doesn't seem to be a part of the consciousness of public health policy over here. Instead, blame is assigned to the poor and marginalized in terms of hygiene and in terms of the way they live. So does looking at public health in our history of systemic oppression through the lens of the gut microbe help us reframe how we think about health itself? And when we do that, what would public health policy even look like? Yes. Yeah, so when you look at, you know, even the history of cholera, that is a, you know, cholera, Vibrio, uh, cholera came from the, um, the, um, Sundabar region of uh, Bangladesh, right? And so that was a site that was never farmed. People didn't go into that site to make rice patties until the British came along and said, you're going to go farm in that area. And that's where you started to see the first waves of cholera that then traveled through these um, arteries of colonization through India, carried by this um, socioeconomic structure that was being imposed upon people who never farmed in that forest. People went into that forest. It was a sacred space. It was a place of tigers. It was a place of you go in to get some honey from the forest, but you didn't go and farm there because they knew. Um, and so this is where, you know, when colonization occurred in India, it extinguished extremely important relationships and duties of care that Adivasi people and um, people who are living close to the earth still retain, still know, um, and those um, that knowledge is being extinguished in you know the sense of like we're we're modern people, we know better, we have to be clean and blaming the victim, the gaslighting that occurs from the medical um, institutions is a classic way of invisibilizing the power structures that are actually at the root of causing these diseases. Um, so I think that we need to locate the problem of malnutrition where it belongs with those policies and structures that are driving our farmers into poverty, that are creating mass rates of uh, cancer in India, in the Punjab region. You have the whole cancer train going with all of our farmers exposed to these 
highly toxic um, herbicides and pesticides that have been imposed upon them through the economic policies advanced by the Rockefellers, by the Green Revolution. So these, these ideas of uh, a technocratic solution to hunger um, are false. And they're, they're showing up again at the climate conference. I was sitting next to somebody on a panel who was talking about lab meat. You know, if we only, if we could only just make lab meat, then you can save the forests and save the in indigenous people. And we don't have to, you know, we don't have to mow those down for more cows because people want more meat, you know, but for me, it's like, well, we, people wanted more cigarettes and we just put a public smoking ban and now we have less death all around. Right. What is it about the Western mind that can see creating meat in a lab, but cannot imagine honoring the sacred nature of the earth and our duties to care for the web of life around us so that we might all be healthy? That that is a that is a, a sleight of hand that we've all been infected with. That is a, a a dynamic of coloniality of power and imaginings that we've all been impacted with. So when we think of malnutrition, we have to think of how we've disempowered our farmers, how we've disempowered our local communities to have everything they need to develop sovereignty of our foods. You both spoke about how there are no quick fixes here. And that brings us to the idea of fecal transplants, which may not be a quick fix, but it is still something that microbiome science and general medicine are investing in as a way of restoring health to people. Can this then be seen as another process of colonization, where we're trying to take non-industrialized microbiomes from indigenous populations to restore health to industrialized populations in a way? And if this is another form of extraction from indigenous populations, then what are the implications of that? Yeah, it's 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 a very interesting analogy, and it would be just interesting if it weren't actually serious, um, because you know, other so many things I want to say in response to that question, and in fact, one citizen scientist journalist did actually. Uh, gave himself an auto transplant and um, it prompted uh, an article in the New York Times, I think it was, by Ed Young, who said there's no such thing as the normal or the healthy microbiome in response to that. It's such a simplistic way to, to deal with things. First thing to say about fecal transplants, it's not new. It's been around for for millennia. Um, it works very well on the short term in the setting of a situation where there's overgrowth of one particular organism, namely Clostridium difficile. And that's a situation where it works very well because you're providing something that can help compete against uh, uh, the overgrowing uh, Clostridium difficile while the host is given time to restore the background microbiome um, uh, and stop the antibiotics that might have created the situation in the first place. But of course, modern medicine always thinks, well, if it works in one situation, it must work in lots of other places and there's a dash to try and repeat it in every imaginable condition. Now, there, it is true that there is some interesting data in trying to modify the microbiome for short-term gain in patients receiving cancer chemotherapy. Because the microbiome is having such a profound effect on the immune system, it can actually favorably influence the response to immunotherapy for cancers. So that's one of the heartening, encouraging aspects of fecal transplants. But in terms of just loosely trying to restore health, as I've said, your, your generally your immune system is educated in childhood, so you've 
you've missed the period of when you can have maximal effects. Your microbiome needs to be fed. When we eat, we're not just feeding ourselves, we're feeding our microbes. So the idea of not changing your lifestyle and just getting a quick fix with the microbiome, you might get a very transient colonization and it'll all fade away. So you'll actually have done probably more harm, exposed yourself to risk in just the same way that the colonialists, once they left the country they colonized, they left chaos behind them in so many situations. And the same happened in this country as well when, when our next door neighbor decided to leave us alone 100 years ago. Um, but just back to the, to the microbiome, the difficulty with fecal transplant is the experiment, or the, if you call it an experiment or a treatment, it's never the same every time. You can't control it specifically. And I believe that while it's a marvelous and the ultimate microbiological experiment and wonderful for people with recurring Clostridium difficile and a great proof of concept in that setting, the future will not be crude fecal transplants. The future will almost certainly be identifying the minimum necessary microbes, uh, gene sequencing, making sure they've no pathogenicity islands, making sure you're not transferring uh, antimicrobial resistance genes at the same time. It's a very blunderbuss crude therapy that already one can see will soon be obsolete and the quicker the better. But as a quick fix, I think a number of clinicians are deluding themselves and sadly may have gone over to the darker side of medicine and doing some things for profit. And for example, how many people explain, how many people actually explain to the patient that when you receive a fecal transplant, okay, desperate situations require desperate remedies, but outside the context of very sick people with Clostridium difficile, if you're taking a fecal transplant just vaguely to improve your health, then you have to keep in mind that, as I said earlier, Health is not the absence of disease. The microbiome does contain some microbes that have the potential in some people to cause cancer. I already mentioned Helicobacter. The same is true of colon cancer. So what does it benefit someone to actually theoretically give themselves some short-lived health gain with some misguided fecal transplant and very definitely acquire microbes that could perhaps, simply because could perhaps, confer an increased risk of, of a colon cancer some decades down the road. Now, I think that is something that patients should be told about. I know very few clinicians who actually do tell their patients that very real. It's, it's more than a theoretical risk. It's a very real risk. So for that alone, I think some of this loose use of fecal transplantation, quite apart from not being evidence-based, is actually misconceived. Gosh, I'm so glad we talked about fecal transplants today. Thank you, Fergus. No, I think it's interesting. Um, also with COVID and long COVID, I've been curious about the immune dysregulation that's happening with COVID um, and long COVID, what we're seeing um, in patients and um, wondering if there is a role for the microbiome somehow being involved in the, gosh, the reconstituting of people's health. Um, we've, we've seen some studies that have shown that, you know, people who are taking probiotics during a COVID infection have lower um, duration of symptoms and intensity of symptoms. Um, but I, I wonder, um, you know, sometimes about how, you know, what role, what's happening in the gut um, when it comes to COVID? 
And and that's something that I think is going to be, we're going to learn a lot about the gut microbiome through this investigation. Is there anything you can tell us about that today? You know, I'm... The COVID effect, hopefully, if it had an effect, and I'm sure it had some, I'm not sure how major it was, and I'm sure it'll vary for different people. Some people were very restricted and very socially isolated, and others were less so. So, you know, it, it, it may vary. The only, my immediate comment is, hopefully it'll be short-lived um, if, it did, if it did occur, but also not to forget other microbiomes. We continually talk about gut microbiome because it, it is the place with the largest number of microbes, not necessarily the most important microbes. They're just the largest number, and it's very accessible, and it courts response response to diet. But the respiratory microbiome, less known about it, but that doesn't mean it's less important. And even if it's numerically not quite uh, as large as the gut microbiome, it could well emerge as being far more important in certain settings, such as the elderly. Most of us will die with respiratory infections, pneumonia is said to be the old man or old woman's friend. Let's not forget the things that normally kill us. Um, Clostridium difficile, which is the one big dramatic example of a so-called dysbiosis, is actually quite uncommon in most, most countries. It's, I wouldn't say it's rare, but it's not the thing that kills all of us. Respiratory infections, however, are a different matter. So I would think that the respiratory microbiome may well emerge in many contexts as being the more important microbiome, in the same way that the skin microbiome might be very relevant in people who are sun exposed and influence the progression of certain cancers on the skin, all in their different contexts. So I, it's just a plea that people not forget the other microbiomes. Um, it's not just about the gut. And just to ask one last concluding question, to see the future of where we're headed, how do medicinal practices have to change knowing what we know about the microbiome from what both of you have been saying, it feels like it needs to be directed outward into the environment, rather than inward into bodies. What would an ethics of care, as you said, Dr. Maria, look like? I would never want to stop the beautiful investigation that goes inward. Um, I think it needs to be balanced with our perspectives and duties of care on both sides. So I think that we focus so much in medicine on the individual, the microscopic, um, and that we forget how our interrelatedness and our histories and dynamics of power are shaping our bodies and responses. So it's more an opening to more narratives. And similarly with that is decolonizing the ways in which we produce knowledge. Um, as Fergus said, that the, the the travelers wrote the study that like they they guided that study they they were telling um, the researchers what the important things were what the takeaway points were that we co-produce knowledge with our communities especially those who have been left out of the defining of medicine and science historically because their perspectives their knowledge the way that they have lived the way that they are um, can can expand and enrich and, and deepen and make medicine more powerful. And so that requires dissolving dynamics of power that have historically been in place in medicine as a colonial practice. Um, and it's an exciting time to be involved in that because so many young people are coming up in medicine and science, just hungry for other ways of being and knowing that can um, be more suitable to the, the immensity of the challenges we face right now with climate and pandemic and the waves of 
crises that are already upon us, as you've said. Yeah, I would say something similar. I just said probably a different way. Um, I, I would say that as much as science can help us, and I've given most of my life and career to to science and more and more science, I am acutely aware that um, as the science of medicine has progressed apace, its humanity has not kept up. And it doesn't benefit us if we have lots of science and no humanity. And um, what I'm referring to when I say humanity, on an individual level, it's obvious, but it won't be which microbe you have or how you feed the microbe that will determine welfare of our societies. It will be still the same old things. The social determinants of health will trump everything we've talked about. And um, we have actually, in a way, been talking about the social determinants of health, but just using things like the microbiome as a new tool to investigate it. But the microbiome is not the trump card. It's the social determinants of health. So we have to keep the main thing, the main thing, as the main thing all the time. There you have it. That's awesome. That's going to be my bumper sticker for my car now, Fergus. <laughs> that was our episode on how the microorganisms in the human gut can give us big picture insights on health, well-being, and policy to determine the future trajectory of the world we want to live in. This was the first season of The Missing Link, where we explore humanity's big questions with the help of unexpected science. We hope you keep interrogating the connections between the natural and social sciences and ponder what it means to live in a world where science can show us how to be human. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been written and produced by Rohita Narhari Sethi and Ananya Singh. Sound designer and associate producer is Vibhav Sara. The art director on the series is Neha Shekhawat and the designer is Hitesh Sonar. The executive producer is Karna Pukman. This podcast is brought to you by DS Studios, the production company that brings this world's point of view to original podcasts and films.